Hello and welcome to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. This is the weekly show where we talk to some of the top entrepreneurs and industry professionals from around the world to inspire and empower the next generation of young professionals. Now, normally, those of you who listen to the podcast uh, will know that I say I'm an 18-year-old entrepreneur from North London now living in Paris, but I'm going to say something a bit different today. I'm now going to say I'm a 19-year-old entrepreneur from North London now living in Paris. It was my birthday uh, over the weekend, so happy birthday to me. Now on today's show, I'm going to be talking to Kevin Tuis allen who's had an incredible career. He's worked for companies like Unilad, Unidays, he's also founded his own company called Ditto, and he's also Downing Street's marketing advisor, which is pretty cool. He's also had a massive career in the music industry before he started off in marketing and branding, working with artists like Usher, Britney Spears, and Justin Timberlake. However, most interestingly, he was the creator of the Winston the Churchill Bulldog, which is one of the most iconic pieces of British branding ever made. Winston the Churchill Bulldog has been used for decades since being created by Kevin and has been the face of British TV ads ever since. Now I wanted to learn the formula for creating a fantastic marketing campaign and an iconic piece of branding. So we dig deep in how to do this on this episode. Also, Kevin's career with Unidays has meant he had to partner with many massive enterprise companies. And we also explore how to open doors with these huge organisations. If you do enjoy this episode, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from, and a written review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about the show, head over to egzpod.com and take a look at our socials. We're at EnterprisingGenZPod on Instagram and on TikTok, and we're egzpod on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Hey, Sam. I'm brilliant. Thank you. How are you? And thanks for having me as part of your podcast today. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We've been talking about it for a while, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's nice to kind of uh, get it get it done. Um, so you sent me your CV when we originally had our initial phone call. Yes. Um, and I was reading through it earlier, and it's honestly like mind-blowing. You work for companies like Unilad, Unidays, Heaven, The Nightclub. You also founded your own companies, um, yep. which is really, really cool. Um, so I quite like to start just, learn, so you, you founded your company called Ditto in 1995. Correct. Um, and I read on your CV that you work with people like Usher, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake. I'd love to learn a bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So I was very, very lucky. Um, at Christmas in 1995, um, I'd, I'd been working with a couple of chaps called Judge Jaws and Pete Tong, who were up and coming DJs, now obviously creme de la creme in Europe and United States. And um, I was, I'd made a record which Judge Jaws really liked, uh, and he'd signed. And then Boy George put it number one in his Christmas top 10, which is literally Christmas Eve in the UK. And then by January, Radio 1 were all over me and it was going nuts. Um, and then we'd been working together on lots of different projects. And then by midsummer, Judge Jules phoned and said, look, you guys are really hot to trot. Um, we've got a track called Josh Wink High State of Consciousness, which we signed from New York. Did quite well last year, but it's it's very hip hop acid. We need like a now that's what I call Christ says what the number was, 15, 16, 21, don't know if it's too long ago. I want a family-orientated record that even Capital FM would play. And I'm like, this is like an acid dance record. Are you joking me? And he's like, nope, and you've got until Friday. Are you up for it? So that's a Monday morning phone call. Click. I was like, okay. <laughs> so we delivered three mixes that week, and Judge Jules didn't like any of them. But the third one we took in ourselves on the Friday. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. And as we were playing the record in the office in Universal Music, Pete Tong walked in the building because the guy who ran Manifesto was Pete's manager. And Pete just opened the door and goes, what's this? 
and Jules said, oh, it's Kevin's record, Joshua, we've done a remix, we're going to relaunch it for summer, but I can't get the mix. I went, you didn't, that's the mix. He said, what do you mean that's the mix? He said, cut me an acetate, that's going to be the essential dance record you tonight on BBC Radio 1 at 6.30. And Judge Jules was literally like, oh, fuck off, mate. It was literally that blunt. And Pete's like, that's the record, that's the hit of the summer. He goes, you don't need to, just sign the record, thank the boys, get me cut, see you in two hours at Radio 1. Eddie jumps in the room and goes, right, get that. They put it from that, got it acetate cut within the hour, 6.30, we're all at home. And I'm like, mom, dad, listen on the radio, we're going to be essential on YouTube. Bang, and it went. Number seven in the charts, 500,000 records, one producer of the decade for that record. And then um, at Universal said, okay, so the next part of the deal I want to work with, the next kind of 10 artists you do. And that was like literally Celine Dion, Elton John, Phil Collins, Lionel Richie. And then, then we burst a wow. wall from Sony. That went to Britney, Justin, um, Usher. It was phenomenal. So 170 productions, 13 number ones. It was epic. It was one of the most incredible 16 years as a hobby and a career that was um, brutally, brutally hard to do because the timelines and pressure is exceptional, but so much reward when you see your record being played out in a club or we watched in Germany where a million people went nuts to the record when it was number one. And you just think, I made, I made that in my bedroom and you guys are defining moments in my life by watching you enjoy what we created in such a tight timeline. So that's where it stemmed from. I mean, that's an incredible story. That's mental. It kind of goes back to, there's so many people who say, well, entrepreneurship just springs out of nowhere. That literally, uh, it's just it sprang out of nowhere. Um, so your background, uh, reading through your CV, your background is obviously marketing. Um, yeah. And so you worked in Heaven Nightclub. You did the, you did marketing for them. I'd yeah. love to know a bit more about kind of what that involves and, and how that was. Yeah, so whilst I was doing music production, um, I was very much in with the clubs and DJing. I, I found that um, one of the reasons I got into kind of dance production was dance music in the mid-90s was big. It was, there was just some amazing records that were doing stuff, great sales throughout the world. But I noticed that the DJ was always involved with the artist or the artist management and then get invited to the after parties. And I was like, I want to become a DJ because that's a pretty cool gig. Not because it was like the prestige of like, doing stuff around the things that I, my network is rubbish and I need to up my game and I need to have a black book of VIP guests. So I did that and I ended up being a residency pretty quickly that ended up in the ministry of sound. And then one of my friends was working at Virgin and got brought me into heaven nightclub and to the VIP. And they said to me, you know, would you consider a, a guest slot? I was like, yeah, sure. It was a main stage. I'd never been to the main stage in heaven. Oh my God. It was like, 1200 people going nuts from 11 p.m to four or five six in the morning it was insane and it was never empty it was full on there were queues halfway up the strand to get in this one club and I, it was my first time and obviously i played and the the manager said would you consider a full-time residency he was like yeah sure and then obviously we talked about where i'd come from he said wow would you help me with the marketing like events parameters vip guest list uh, key events such as Pride or, you know, it wasn't Black History Month wasn't even a thing then, but we would celebrate a lot more of international cultures, Brazil, Jamaica, um, Rumba and Southlands, things like that. So it was a, a whole mix of um, events. But I was there 12 years um, and run their most successful night, which is called Popcorn, which is a Monday night, which is still running, I believe. Um, yeah, it was it was a night that was 17 to 1800 a week on a Monday night. It's unheard of in any club in the US or UK. 
it's it was insane numbers we were female friendly we were gay friendly we were just it was about unity and harmony having a great time being safe being correct and there for entertainment that's fantastic i mean i've actually i've never been to heaven but i, I really want to go it's a bit more difficult now me being in paris um but as soon as i'm back in london, <laughs> as soon as I'm back in london i'll be there um and kind of the, the main thing i want to talk about so you were involved in creating um the churchill winston bulldog campaign yeah. Now, I really, I know that's still running to this day. Um, my dad's in the car insurance industry. So when I mentioned you were coming on the show, <laughs> he was very impressed. And that is probably one of the most iconic kind of figures in British like ads on TV. And it's instantly recognizable. Um, and I'd, I'd love to know a bit more about kind of where that stemmed from, um, your involvement in it. And if you kind of ever expected that it would still be, still be their kind of mascot oh, to this wow. day. Absolutely. And again, people say to me, oh, you've been so lucky in your life. I'm like, I don't believe in luck. I believe in ultimate hard work and dedication to your cause. I mean, possibly luck has played a part in certain things. But if I wasn't showing up and and doing the do, nothing would have ever come for it. And it was whilst I was back in that club land when I was 19, I'd just become the DJ of this really famous club in the southeast. And there's a girl called Jackie who worked at Car Insurance. It was in Bromley. In fact, I still think Churchill is based in Bromley in Kent in England. Um, and she said, you're into marketing, aren't you? I was like, what's marketing? I have no idea what the M word was back at that point. You're 19, right? This is 1993. Um, I'd not even become a record producer at that point. And she said, look, we, we're a, a company called Churchill and we have a creative brief that went out to four of the big agencies in London. They've not come up with a great concept. Would you mind having a go? I was like, yeah, sure, get me the brief. So she gets to this brief and it's like literally a sentence. That's it. It's a bit of paper with written words on it. Just said, we want to become female friendly as a brand. We must retain a heritage. We must be British and the values must align to all of our heritage in the United Kingdom. What is What should the brand look like in order to get young females to sign up as the first car insurer? So basically at 18, what would make a 18-year-old driver passing the driving test sign with church insurance as opposed to all the others? So I thought about it. I come back next week. I said, okay, I've got it. It's a nodding dog. It's It's a cartoon. It's a dog. And he's called Winston. And she went, why Winston? I said, well, he's called Winston the Churchill Bulldog. And she went, I don't get it. I went, the prime minister. Winston, the Churchill Bulldog, because this has got to be deep roots of heritage and brand association. I said, and he's going to have this really cool voice that kind of goes, oh, no, like that. And she laughed. She said, that's actually really cool. I said, so he's kind of, it can be either a nodding dog in the back of a car, because those were a thing back in the day. They were really, I said, because it's very female friendly. And he's a puppy, right? Things, everybody loves a puppy. And if you make a cute, gorgeous little bulldog cartoon or nodding dog, I said, every woman in the land will go, oh, that's so cute. All right. So then the insurance becomes almost second because you're going to put a brand identity in front of the payment of the car insurance because car insurance is just not sexy. But if you put a cute dog in front of the brand, you will fast track customers. If, if it's female 18 year olds you want, then it's got to be a puppy and he's got to be as cute as hell. And he's got a really good voice that is representative of the heritage of the brand. 29 years later, I had no idea he'd still be the face of the brand on TV adverts, on cinema commercials. And I've been booked all over the world on stage to say, how do you create a sustainable brand? And I have to say, well, you need to probably put an animal in front of your branding and create a narrative around cuteness. And then people believe you with more authenticity than they ever did before. So when you created it, um, 
did you kind of have the longevity in mind or was it kind of was it like a short-term thing it was a short-term thing i thought it'd be a great idea to get females to sign the dotted line to get their first car insurance from this company in bromley kent that is literally how i left it and it was only four weeks later when she come back and said ceo loves the idea there's a thousand pounds and you can put it on the CV for the rest of your life. I still, at that point, had no idea how important that moment was. I was like, well, £1,000, that sounds a lot of money. And she goes, probably not, but um, just take it and just pat on the back, off you go. <laughs> and that's what happened. The fact it's a bulldog, it's also got quite a masculine element to it as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it was testament to how my brain was thinking, and it's only because I've got older I've recognised that. I think two sides of the fence with regards to male and female, I'm kind of neutral in, in its bond because I suppose what I was saying to the brand later in the years was this is a family friendly dog, whether it's a boy or a girl that loves the puppy, everybody loves a puppy. So the genius of that marketing campaign is whilst the CEO wanted just females, he got everybody which launched him into a car insurance giant, which I think dominated for two or three decades they're still up there they're still top five for sure definitely and also as well i mean just generally because this podcast is kind of to inspire young founders and entrepreneurs so and also i think creating a marketing campaign as you said you you mentioned the tip earlier of having an animal in it um do you think what would your tips be to create a successful marketing campaign if you're just launching your business yeah, it's really good. So they've always been the same. And it was only when I ended up at Unilad, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, but they had two principles and they were relatable and shareable. And until you really get under the skin of both of them, because people think, oh, yeah, oh, that's easy to do. No, it's not. It's really not. Because if you are relatable, you're genuinely in tune with the audience you're trying to focus on. And that can be a 15 year old or it can be a 25 year old. It could be male, female black or brown or white or Chinese, gay or straight, you've really got to have an inherent targeting framework around relatability. Once you get that now, do you then have to create a video or a story or a blog or a film or a music track or a video or a live around, is someone going to share this? Because if this resonates with that target audience, they're going to go at Daniel, at Mark, at Sarah, at Claire, watch this, this is epic. And therefore, coming right back to Churchill it's just having a really good idea that resonates with the audience you're never going to please everyone but if you can get the 80 20 rule where 80 percent of the country or the world or what the audience is like that's sick uh, absolutely of that you can forget the 20 percent who hate it and you, you mentioned your work with Unilad there so I read on your CV that while the time you, you were there um, I can't remember what this, the figure was um, I think it's oh yeah so the business grew from 2 million to 40 million and you were global director of strategy entertainment yeah. um which is obviously quite an important role yeah it was um, pretty <laughs> <laughs> um so I, yeah just tell me more about that so yeah i got headhunted out of a creative agency we won nine drum awards in the year before that was from peer to peer peer to peer um which basically is your the brands that you've worked with a creative agency have ranked to number one it was financial performance because i doubled the agency revenue and then design. So our design team was amazing. So our creative was out there. So I was the first kind of external hire Unilad. Um, I joined the same time as Matt, who's commercial director, wonderful guy. Um, and there were these three lads from Manchester at the point, and they started out making t-shirts in a sweaty garage in Manchester. That's their words, not mine. I never used that's that how they introduced themselves. <laughs> and we were at 22 staff at that point in Old Street. 
And the business was growing really rapidly. I think at that point they had around about 12 to 15 million organic likes. Um, and I'd said to them, okay, so what's the plan? I was like, we don't really have one. That's why we want to bring someone like you in who can do agency side, brand direct, business development, entertainment, right across gaming, sport, fitness, fashion, food. You've got all the bits. I'm like, okay, great. Um, and it was only when I said, what happens if Facebook went bust? And they went, what do you mean? I said, well, what if it got bought by, I don't know, Apple or someone else? Or, or it had a terrible crash like Vine did, and it just the users just drop off for whatever reputation issue. And I was like, well, we'd be finished. I said, well, why don't we look at expanding the portfolio into YouTube? And there's this new thing coming called Instagram and our own website and our own app. And let's spread the risk and let's spread the audiences and let's try and think things differently. So whilst there was a massive content play, and cash in from brands and agencies, which we were doing very well in, um, uh, we need to think about longevity. And then I had this amazing idea, and I said to them, not like the, the bulldog moment, where I said, is there any like brand safety guidelines on news? Because they were very news-driven, and there was a lot in the press that time. It was like Trump was bubbling through, and there was oh, so many fake news stories. I said, what if we got a badge like that made us brand safe? That would allow me to go back to the industry in the UK to say, we're the only news partner in the world that has this badge. So we guarantee you that there's no clickbait, there's you know no false stories. We don't take a side on Labour, Conservative, Republican, or you know Democrat. We don't we don't do that. And they're like, okay. And I, I was at an event and I met this guy who had this brand safety badge agency, and he he was a charity. He was like, you know, what do we? How do we work together? Long story short, I got this badge stuck it on the front of the website and then the week after the buzzfeed story that where that term fake news come from launched and that's where the trump thing went and him into presidency but at the same time everybody got very nervous to spend their money with an advertiser that was newsworthy that was like oh are you going to be left or right and i was like no we're brand safe we're in the middle and I, I went to the industry and we saw brands from like beer brands, I won't name the name on this, but went from kind of 20 grand to 400,000 pounds per brief within a month. There lied the key to our brand success because we made neutral, we were authentic, we were credible and reputational, and they went to 122 staff in nine months. Wow, that is massive growth. That's huge. But it was again, the little seed that enabled you to differentiate the business at the highest level possible and made you made the storytelling real because without it, no one cared. And do you think Unilab will be where it is today without what what happened? No, what I think it, what, like, whilst I was one of the first people to do that kind of role, there were other people like Matt, who was my commercial director, an amazing guy. There were We brought on some useful people that helped us transcend that year. But genuinely, I mean, obviously... You, you will know from the court cases online that Unilad got moved into Lad Bible and quite rightly so, because none of us knew the, the history before any of us were employed of how that happened. But yeah, it would never have been the huge 30 million plus organic likes. I mean, we were doing 4 billion video views a month at its height. That's two thirds of the planet were watching Unilad. And is no, that, which platforms are that, are that on? That's on Facebook. I mean, Facebook, oh, that's mental. Those numbers are crazy. Those numbers are crazy. We would get shared in, I mean, our biggest audience were in the US and yet we were based in Old Street. I mean, it was boggling. We would go all around the world, Web Summit in Portugal, remember being Web Summit, yet Gary van der Chark and us and huge brands like Guardian and News of the World. And we were talking about, you're out of date, you're boring, you're rubbish, you don't understand what Facebook Live is. We're working with Facebook on all of their beta testing. 
and every brand was like these guys are so innovative but they know they know their shizzle and and they're just doing stuff and talking sense and they're also finding their feet by the way because they're in high growth they, they admit they don't know everything but they're willing to give it a try I mean, that's just, that's, that's crazy. I mean, especially on Facebook, because the algorithm doesn't work in a way that allows for like growth in that way. But it changed. Was, yeah, the year yeah. after it all got changed. So you now, I mean, like, I think Lab Bible's views are a billion a month and they're the largest millennial publisher on the planet. It just shows how Facebook have kind of de-rigged their rigged. I mean, they were constantly moaning the stuff that we were doing because we, we, weren't, we weren't flunking the rules, but we were using their tech to find innovative ways to get like polling going. We were the first to do live polling of the presidency elections and get a real measure of consumer audience rather than like Rage or BBC saying, oh, 57% of like, yeah, well, that's 200 people. We've just got 1.9 million votes. We know where that's going. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's crazy. I mean, because I do a lot of stuff on social media and those figures kind of are just, I almost want to faint. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. And then I, I want to move on to another part of your career. So as a student, I can really, really appreciate uh, uni days. Um, I love uh, I love the discounts. It's very nice. Very uh, nice. So you, you were vice president. Um, yeah. And you would part of you know launching um media content for students um and stuff like that again like really successful marketing campaigns yeah um, i'd love to know a bit more about about that yeah so uni days obviously after my success at unilad but like, would you recreate a student version of unilad because that was obviously millennials so you're kind of 25 to 44 as in if, if you had to put a bracket around the number um and I said, yeah, for sure. But I said, you know, it costs a fortune to do and it's got to be content front loaded. So you don't have any content. So I said to them, why don't I set up a media division where we've got the same principles as Unilad? So we have an editorial team, we've got a creative team, we have a production team, and then we connect to the brands. But what we could do first is go to the brands and say, Misguided, Boohoo, Converse, Dr. Martin's, Pizza Express, Papa John's, PepsiCo. Would you like this style of, well, you can imagine within like two days, Miss Guy did put an obscene amount of money on the table and said, we'd like to actually own the entire operation. We'd like to literally, we want to be the brand sponsor of all of it. So like the CEO was just like, holy cow, like you weren't joking. We was like, this is big stuff. If you know digital like I do and social like I do, you're not messing around, but you can't do it with £2.50. You've really got to. Now you've got Unilad up here. Labba were absolutely killing it. BuzzFeed were back on their feet. Vice were nailing it. There are multiple others coming through the ranks. You've got to to fight hard and you're going to own your space. Luckily for them, they had a great student database, but they hadn't cracked the US. They only had 2 million in the US and there were... 21.5 million students in the US so they were a tiny percentage of the US market and it was their gig to launch that so the UK media division as a construct was to really um, help unify the US team in New York who were a lovely bunch of people and yeah I launched it in New York and it went very well. And and you work with companies like JD Sport, Dr Martins, Topshop, PLT, Misguided like really you know high street brands. Huge brands yeah anything yeah, I mean, anything a student was interested in. And obviously, you, when you understand a, lot, a bit like car insurance, right? when you understand the life of a student, when they come out of, out of school or out of uni, things they really need is a bank card, right? a phone, <laughs> sports gear, food, and probably drink. And yes, some of it, although we can't say alcohol, it was 
uh, requests so many things, but we had to go Mountain Dew, PepsiCo, Evian, blah, 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 blah. So we had to be brand safe because there was a lot of regulation even then around promoting to underage drinking and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was those kind of killer touch points and they've not changed in those years. They're exactly the same brands, exactly the same touch points, apart from things that perhaps like Tide or Starling that have come much more forward from a banking perspective who have said, we're a better bank than them. So it's a fight to get that customer lifetime value at first point. And how did you, because obviously that's kind of B2B and I find B2B kind of getting in contact with those big companies difficult. And it's a topic that I've focused on a lot actually with previous and previous episodes, but I'd love to get your opinion. How do you kind of get in contact and get your foot in the door with those companies? Yeah. So, I mean, what's, see, I'm, I'm, Sometimes I'm a bit unpopular in this subject. I think B2B is absolutely inherently linked to D2C because if, you're, if your end user is Margaret, Brian or George at the end of the stick, then you cannot forget that B2B, B2C journey and then D2C. So for instance, a brand like, so if we were pitching to Dr. Martins, who was a big client of ours, whilst we had a database and connectivity where I stepped in and said, yeah, great, how good is your social advertising? What are you saying? What does the narrative look like around the boot? What does the visualization look? Look at the latest Nike advert. It was very urban. It was very cool. The soundtrack was punchy. Yours sounds like it's stuck in the 80s with Levi's. Let's refresh the entire creative and make it relevant to our audience. And let's talk about a 10 second advert and not a two minute because they're not going to, currently that scroll rate was about 8.4 seconds on a mobile from, it's now 1.7. So just to show you how quick your narrative has to come across video right it's really really important so i would normally pitch when we're doing b2b pitches is to kind of re-understand their audience around who's actually going to buy at the end of the process so whilst we were with union days and union lad we were mixing those conversations um it was always about the end customer and we really i really understood particularly in the narrative of even if you were working with zoom and whilst a company was buying zoom zoom was actually for their staff so I understood that kind of through the needle bullseye piece. And the other bit that to mention is really important for someone like yourself is that agencies, there's kind of four sets. You've got media agencies, so important. Digital agencies, creative and PR. Media agencies like Mediacom and Group M and WPP hold significant budgets, 50 million, 100 million, 250 million. So often people steam into like saying, oh, I've got a great idea, I want your marketing budget. And I'm like, it's gone. <laughs> It's an agency, you've got to go to them. So a lot of our time was spent working harmoniously with media agencies, not just brand directs and B2B. So be, be very, I mean, obviously if anyone's listening yourself, is that have a real understanding of where that budget is actually sitting because it's never clear. So you've got to work gently through the process and ask people where that marketing budget's sifting. Sky's a good one. Sky give all of their budget bar a few hundred million to a brand to spend on their behalf. And if you don't have an enormous budget and, and you're, you're a really small scale startup, do you think it's possible to get your foot in the door with those brands or do you really think you have to start somewhere different? Yeah, particularly right now. So there's a massive switch out from these macro influencers to micro. So I, it was a funny, it was on the call this morning. So micro is kind of under 16,000, your class as a micro influencer. But why brands are very interested in that is because they'd much rather speak to audiences on a, what they call a micro level. So if they've got an, a bubbling influencer, even at two and a half thousand followers, and you're trying to sell Gymshark stuff, they'd much rather root it because two and a half thousand plus two and a half thousand plus two and a half thousand of organic reach 
is better than a 50,000 because everybody in that 50,000 goes, yeah, they've just got 25,000 quid for that. Don't I don't believe it. So they've really swung their neck around to micro influencers who are more organic. And it's a thing called network effects. If, if you or the, your listeners want to look at that, it's how Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook. So Facebook was started as a student group. It was a maximum 2,000 students. That's how Facebook started. But all Mark did was basically put a forum together where the parties were and without the university knowing, which did get him suspended. But he's become one of the most successful businessmen in the world. But it's called network effects. As you start with an audience that become fanatics, much like the Bulldog, much like Unilag, Unilag, much like my music career. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's super, super interesting. And my final, my final question is what three words would you use to describe a good or successful entrepreneur? Ooh, um, empathy is first. If, if you don't have empathy, you cannot build a killer team. You just can't. You've got to have empathy because you and your client have really bad days. It's just the way of the world. And with mental health, it's kind of, I think possibly it's highest profile. I'm not going to say worst or best because I don't believe in those words, but empathy is amazing to have um you need to have a true disruptive nature and what i mean is that you've really got to cut through the noise with regards to your campaign your messaging your website your visuals your logo your team your vision values mission vision and then thirdly my big one is evidence i don't make any business decision without an evidence-based business case so when my team come to me and say we're thinking of going into the asian market We've seen the trend. The trend was referenced at Bloomberg. The numbers were here. This is what they bought. This is when they bought it. And this was the kind of the numbers around it. We think it's worth an investment. And I'm like, great. You've changed the we think to I know, which makes you super powerful. Because whether this is an investor, me as an MD or CEO, or your team, you become very believable very quickly because you didn't wake up and want to go, I had an idea about launching a lollipop on the moon. No, you were very focused in how you got to that business decision. It's less risk. It's much more likely to be profitable. Then you can go and win awards. Then you can go and employ more staff and grow the business, which makes, I think, a perfect entrepreneur. I know it's said my final question, but I'm just going to say this. <laughs> <laughs> um, the stuff you said about disruption is really interesting um, because I think, especially at the moment, we're going through like seismic change in the world of entrepreneurship and business. And I think differentiation through being disruptive and kind of going away from the status quo is really important. Um, and I see, I saw, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but there's a guy who I know who runs a marketing agency and he does things so differently. And, you know, if you looked at him 10 years ago, you think, what are you doing? But actually it's, yeah, that's a really good point. And that's something I haven't thought of. It is. You've got to stand out. And a disruptive doesn't mean, say, you're bullish or you're rude or you're arrogant. Disruptive means you have a slicker way of putting your hand above the parapet and saying, we're open for business, we're the best, and we do things differently. And my three principles are this, and it's really good for this podcast, is three things I tell you is, why are you different? What do you do differently? And the big one is, name me one thing you do differently to everybody else. Because if you can answer question three, you've got yourself a gym shark or a uni lad, or a Huel. That's really interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been so interesting. <laughs> thank you for having me. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. Honestly, I think this is one of the most interesting episodes I've ever recorded. Now, if you enjoyed it as much as me, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from and a written review on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot. If you want to find out more about the podcast and more about me, head over to egzpod.com where you can find articles, analytics, and maybe even some merch in the next few weeks. Who knows? Who knows? If you want to learn more about Enterprising Gen Z events, my events company that I founded, head over to egzevents.com. Also, make sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. I'm talking to Vicky Main, all about the mindsets that entrepreneurs need to have in order to be successful. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.